It's not just radio, it's Rockland World Radio. RocklandWorldRadio.com Alright, hello, and thanks for tuning in to another edition of New York Update. This is Jake Jacobs. We're online at nyupdate.org, and we are live on RocklandWorldRadio.com every Tuesday around 7 o'clock. Uh, we're going to dive into some news headlines here uh, regarding some education stories uh, that have been coming out fast and furious. Uh, we're going to go back to August 27th and a tweet about this podcast that I listened to during the summer. It's seven episodes. And for anybody even mildly interested in the charter school wars going on in New York City, this is a must hear. The company that puts it out is called Gimlet Media. So you can go to the Gimlet media.com website and and they have a lot of different podcasts there one of the podcasts that they have is a regular series called startup and startup has been covering startups for a while like silicon valley startups and all kinds of different businesses and in an interesting twist they decided to cover the success academy charter school chain it is new york state's largest charter school chain with 46, I believe, charter schools, and and it's very controversial. Um, you know, they have been lobbying Albany. They have uh, associated PACs, and, you know, the, the big knock on the charter schools, of course, is that they cherry-pick the students, that they only focus on standardized testing, that they have draconian disciplinary practices and that they make little kids act like robots and they so people should go to the startup podcast and listen to the success academy series uh there's seven episodes they're about 40 minutes a piece they're well worth listening to i finally heard the last one about a week or two ago and there were moments that make you cry um you know they bring you through the formation of the success academy network they bring you through the controversies with uh, people protesting and Success Academy fighting for space, the whole war between Mayor de Blasio and Eva Moskowitz. It's really, really interesting. And so we posted a tweet originally that's called Binge and Cringe, right? Because, you know, once you listen to the first episode, you can't help listening to the rest. And we write, riveting seven-part audio podcast by Lisa Chow exposes Success Academy and the pros and cons of New York City charter schools. You might cry for the girl who worked her way all the way up to an 80 GPA but was left back anyway as her incredulous mom was escorted out by security. And this episode two... We covered the formation of the uh, charter chain. So episode one was really about the problem with parents being dissatisfied with public schools. And the way to improve public schools is not to replace them with charter schools because then you have money going out of the public system. You have uh, unaccountable you know, CEOs. Uh, Eva Moskowitz makes half a million dollars a year. That's, you know, is that all coming from taxpayer money? So if there's a problem with public schools, we need to look at that. We need to fix it because charter schools are replacing about 10% of the schools in New York City and only about 5 or 6% statewide. That's not a solution. I mean, that's like, 
you know, that's like saying the solution to the economic problem in America is making a lottery and making some people insanely wealthy and everyone else, well, just ignore them. That is not a solution, right? There, there's no equity in that, and it doesn't help the vast majority. So that's why I'm against charter schools, you know, all the reasons stated. I did think that the producers did a pretty balanced job setting the stage for the drama, but I thought that the or none of the episodes really did cover the hedge funders providing the original funding for Success Academy, keeping it afloat, artificially creating a market for a new type of school that would never exist without these hedge funders pumping in millions of dollars, right? I mean, it's kind of like when they say the nuclear industry is competing against the oil industry or the wind and the solar industry, but the nuclear industry couldn't exist without government subsidies because there's no way to insure those uh, nuclear power plants for a liability insurance, right? If, if there's a meltdown, everybody basically dies. This gives them waivers, and no other industry gets that. Even the oil company fracking, nobody gets waivers for polluting or for toxic chemicals. And so, you know, they have unfair advantages, and they could not exist without it. Similarly, charter schools only exist because they are propped up by billionaires. They're literally propped up by billionaires who are trying to make charter schools stay around and they really start to expand and expand and replace public schools. Currently nationwide, charter schools are only about 6% of the schools and the billionaires are trying to make them stick around and trying to convince everybody that, they are, that they're superior because they have higher test scores and that we should continue to let them expand because, number one, they want to replace public schools because the public schools are unionized. And if they can reduce the number of public schools, they can reduce the number of union teachers in the country. And if they can do that, they can reduce the power of the unions, state by state, city by city, block by block. And if you can do that, you can win more elections for these Republicans, for these privatizers, for these pro-austerity people. I would even put corporate Democrats in there. So that's one big thing, right? There's these big you know, pro-business, uh, pro-market, anti-union forces. All right. The other thing is they're trying to make standardized testing an actual scientific metric when it is completely unscientific. A uh, kid does well on a test. You have no idea whether the parent coached the kid. You know, who knows if the kid is getting private tutoring? How do you compare one kid to another when you have no idea? For all these reasons, uh, the testing is unscientific, and it does not measure learning. I mean, it, it is a broad measurement. It is a blunt measurement. You know, it can tell you if a kid is on grade level, but it can't tell you whether the school put them on grade level or not. And the results of these standardized tests for years have very closely correlated with economy, with the income, right? How privileged is the family? Well, that will tell you how well they do on test scores. There are kids that defy the odds, and, you know, they come from a poor neighborhood, and, you know, they're minority kids, and they end up doing really, really well. But the vast majority, just look at these tests, right? They are such a blunt, inaccurate instrument. Schools need smaller classes. Schools need more teachers. The joke of it is that we've had this standardized testing since 2001, or 2002 is when it got implemented, and the help has never come. They have identified those schools in need, and they've never done anything about it. As a matter of fact, they've only penalized schools. The original No Child Left Behind program 
said that if a school does not have their kids testing at proficient levels, they're going to strip away funding. They're going to make it even harder for those kids. It's crazy. So the charter school industry relies on standardized testing. For some reason, the politicians and the media and all the education observers in the country think that standardized tests are an accurate way to measure charter schools when they're not an accurate way to measure public schools. And that doesn't make any sense. So standardized tests really exist to prop up charter schools and to expand charter schools. They exist to try to paint the narrative that public schools are failing. You might even see people uh, breaking out statistics. Well, in this entire school district, only 26% of kids are proficient. Well, that is because only 26% of the kids are actually able to do that test that you put in front of them. And whether or not that actually shows proficiency at that grade level is debatable. But whether or not that proficiency score tells you whether or not that kid is going to do okay in life, it's completely ridiculous because kids grow and develop at wildly varying paces, and that's something that a standardized test can never capture. If a kid is behind in first grade, that doesn't mean they're going to be behind in third grade. The story in New York City and the story in a lot of densely populated urban areas is that a lot of the kids don't do well academically in school and go on to have completely fine, productive lives, careers, families, you name it. The vast majority end up passing their classes, going, some go on to college, some go right to work, some go to the military. There's lots of different things going on. The vast majority of kids, rates you know, in New York City are 70% across the board and, and, and higher in other areas. So what are these standardized tests for? These standardized tests were put in by George W. Bush and a bunch of Democrats like Ted Kennedy, and they said, we're going to test every kid every year in third to eighth grade. We're going to take that data. And, you know, originally they, they said, we're going to punish the schools that are testing low, and we are going to reward the, the schools that are doing it right. And the thinking was that they were going to somehow be able to take what the schools were doing right and replicate that across the system. But it's ridiculous because, again, it goes back to economics, right? If a family is in an impoverished neighborhood with high crime and, you know, the kids are unattended or there's neglect and abuse, you know, or there's gangs in the neighborhood, there's drugs in the neighborhood, teen pregnancy, you name it, there's a lot of interruptions in reality. You can't just snap your fingers and say, well, give the kids this textbook and, you know, teach this and then they'll all do fine. It doesn't work like that because kids are a product of their environment. So, this podcast. I highly recommend it because it shows the ins and outs of the moms that put their kids in the school, the employees of Success Academy charter schools, many of who blow the whistle on their draconian disciplinary policies, and this thing that they call the Magic Five. So when these kids start in kindergarten, they start them very young training them to be obedient and to be disciplined. And the magic five, if I remember this right, is uh, sit up, back straight, clasp your hands, feet flat on the floor, and your eyes are your eyes are moving on the speaker, on the teacher, right? You're making eye contact, right? So this is complete and total control of the kids' every movement in the classroom, right? This is all day long from the time that they start in kindergarten. So the podcast reveals this. They have astounding 
access to the students, the teachers, from the CEO down to the teachers and the instructional coaches, you know, and to critics and, and everybody in between. So I really recommend you go out and listen to Startup Podcast Success Academy episodes one through seven on the GimletMedia.com website. You will be riveted. We also did a tweet about the fact that the podcast didn't cover the naked political pay-for-play involved in the rolling out of charters, but Lisa Chow and her team did a pretty good job of covering the story within the charters and the struggles that the charters had to get space for the schools, to get funding for the schools, to get curriculum for the schools, to get buy-in. You, you just have to listen to this podcast. It's amazing. Okay, so um, we're going to come back to Success Academy later because they are in in the news always. But um, let's go to another story, starting with a tweet that went out on August 26th. It says, Integration now? Mayor de Blasio proposal tries to take school segregation band-aid off all at once. But the New York Times reporter Eliza Shapiro fears that whites and Asians will leave the public schools if academic screening and gifted programs cease. So this is really big, and it's being covered in a couple of other places now, too. As a matter of fact, I just saw this morning was the debut of a new radio show on WBAI by Lainey Hameson and Carol Burris. And I I think they call it Talking Out of School. It's on at 10 a.m. on Wednesdays. So obviously I couldn't listen to it. I'm in the classroom. But I will listen to it when I get home tonight. And I can't wait to because Lainey Hameson is the director of Class Size Matters. They're an organization that has been fighting for smaller class sizes. And Carol Burris is a former Long Island high school principal. She's a former principal of the year, award-winning principal, uh, you know, widely recognized. She has had a column in the Washington Post about education for years now. And she is now the executive director of the NPE, the Network for Public Education. She knows her stuff. And so uh, people's topics they were talking about this morning on their inaugural program was uh, Mayor de Blasio and New York City Schools Chancellor Richard Carranza, who have been trying to integrate the public schools, right? So imagine some of the affluent neighborhoods in Brooklyn like Cobble Hill or Fort Greene, you know, there's like projects nearby, but there's brownstones, you have income people and middle income people and white or black, you know, predominantly white, predominantly minority. There's been, you know, quote, good schools and bad schools. And, you know, to his credit, Mayor de Blasio was trying to do something about that. This is not an endorsement of Mayor de Blasio. He's my boss. I have plenty of criticisms about Mayor de Blasio. But I do agree with the spirit of what he's trying to do, and I know it's not going to be easy. So I tweeted out on August 26th, MLK's dream, time to see if New York City parents of privilege walk the walk. And that is because the school year just started, and right now, as we speak, kids are coming home from their first couple of days of school, and they're going to more integrated schools. This is happening in District 15 in Brooklyn. This happened a little bit two years ago on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. They're doing it little by little. Uh, I guess maybe they're not taking the Band-Aid off all at once. But on a policy level, there's a really big paper that came out. There's been a commission that was convened, and it's, it's called something like the New York City Equity Commission. Uh, it has a lot of different stakeholders, a lot of diverse stakeholders on it, and they issued a report that said, yes, 
This is what we need to be doing, and we need to break down these walls. That's going to be a really big fight. You know, you could imagine, like, you know, uh, white parents or maybe even, you know, any parents of privilege that lived in an exclusive neighborhood, and they thought that their public school was exclusive, and now they're going to be holding seats for low-income students, or maybe they're going to be holding seats for students with lower test scores. And, you know, these parents are going to be like, oh, what are they doing here? You know, like, is this going to have an effect on my property value? Or, you know, am I going to have to worry about my kid getting, you know, put in a headlock in the middle of school? These are conversations that we need to have. And, you know, I think people need to get over it. You know, when I grew up in New York City, I went to I went to a pretty well-integrated elementary school, but then I went to middle schools and high schools that were majority minority. And so I know what it's like to go to these schools. It's not the end of the world. White parents are clutching their pearls way too much. Sometimes they pull their kids out and they send them to these expensive private schools like Dalton and Fieldston and, you know, all these, you know, really upper upper class, upper echelon names. They spend twenty grand a year. You know, why not invest in the nearby public school? Why not go to the school right down the street? Why put your kid on a bus every morning? If they did that and they showed up at these parent meetings and they were part of the community, maybe these schools wouldn't have gone downhill in the first place, right? Maybe there would have been more diverse pool of parents and involvement, you know. So, you know, I'm all for it. We will be covering that issue. So now we're going to talk about August 27th tweet called Cat Out of the Bag. Uh, And this refers to the podcast that I was talking about, the startup podcast. We write, on the heels of the podcast about Success Academy, showing the New York City charter schools and how they rig success, New York City media is starting to come clean. First, the New York Times' Eliza Shapiro opens up about shortcomings like cherry-picking students and draconian discipline policies. Now, a Wall Street Journal op-ed admits it's all an illusion. And uh, true enough, this opinion piece that came out in the Wall Street Journal did admit it is all an illusion. They're comparing apples to oranges because their students are self-selected. And we're going to have an even bigger story on this coming out uh, next Tuesday because I bookmarked an article that's insane, and it talks about how Success Academy and some of these other charter chains, and they're saying, like, you know, families are not quite there yet, you know, that they have to go all in. They have to agree to all these discipline policies. Otherwise, they're not the right fit, right? It isn't a matter of the schools tailoring their education services to the needs of the community. It is the opposite. So we have a tweet here from August 28th, um, and the headline is, Not the Onion which means you're about to hear something ridiculous, but it's absolutely true. And it says, David Coleman, the CEO of the College Board, who assigns single academic scores to students, quote, summing it up in a single score was a mistake. All right, and what does all that mean? So the the guy that runs the College Board, which is the, the private company that runs the SATs, right, they're called the College Board. They're not a college. They are a corporation, and they're called the College Board, right? But they uh, design, and they market, and they promote the SAT. You know that every kid has to pay to take the SAT? And they were uh, considering adding adversity scores, 
right? That means that kids would be assigned a score depending on whether they came from a rough neighborhood, whether their school was considered in high poverty. And they weren't exactly listing the factors, but it was going to be very controversial. You know, some Harvard-bound kids that get all 1600s on their SATs, and now they're going to, you know, be compared to some other kid that only got a 1200, but because he has an adversity score, you know, that 1200 gets curved somehow and raised. So they dropped the idea. And the irony, why we said not the onion, is because David Kulkulis to try to sum up the totality of a student in a single score. But that's exactly what they do for the SAT, right? That's what they do for their academic abilities, right? They sum it up in a single score. And so, you know, they don't want adversity being part of it. They did announce that they will be making some change, um, and I believe this is going to be, this might be starting as soon as this year, but uh, there was a huge backlash, and so they're not going to be having the ad- adversity scores. Instead, they're going to be using a tool called Landscape, which will provide admissions counselors with information about a student's background, like the average neighborhood income and crime rates. But the data points will not be given a score, and it sounds like it will be up to the college admissions counselors to proactively search up this secondary tool called Landscape, right? So it's not like it will just travel along with the kids' SAT score. Next, we have a tweet on August 30th talking about Mayor de Blasio and his new charter school data mining policy. So... In case you don't know, New York City right now is turning over the names and the addresses, the phone numbers and the emails of every public school student to the charter school industry in order so that they can market products such as postcards and mailers to public school students. It is not clear whether the taxpayer is getting paid for this or whether we are doing this for free. But it is illegal, and apparently... New York City doesn't care. There is a federal law called FERPA which prevents the sharing of any personal private data from students. But New York City is handing it over nonetheless. There is a lawsuit to prevent New York City from handing personal student data over to the charter school industry's privatized marketing contractors. Parents only have until mid-October to opt out. So instead of saying, you know, parents can opt in if they want their private data handed over to charter schools. Instead, he's saying parents have to opt out, and you have to do it by October. Okay, so bad policy for Mayor de Blasio. Boo. He's got to improve his data mining policies, and he's got to do it soon. All right, next tweet is September 1st. It's called Voucher Vultures, and this was amazing, too. This is The Hill, which I consider to be a right-wing publication. They Even they came out with showing how much evidence there is uh, demonstrating that school vouchers are a bad idea. They hurt students. They worsen outcomes. And how obvious it is that Trump and Betsy DeVos want to rob public schools in order to make future voters less educated and, and to end the separation of church and state. Okay, so this is the voucher debate, and it's not a big deal right now in New York because... You know, when Cuomo tried to put backdoor vouchers in, you know, there was an outcry and they turned back the tide, even though he had the support of the Catholic schools and he had the support of the yeshivas and he had the support of the private schools. Vouchers was a non-starter in New York. Uh, That doesn't mean it isn't happening in other states. 
And Betsy DeVos and Donald Trump love vouchers. They want to give vouchers. Uh, they, want, they want people to be able to get taxpayer dollars for vouchers because that would instantly start to erode uh, public school funding, right? You know, if you had free money going towards your Catholic school's tuition, more people would go to Catholic schools, and that would shrink the size of public schools. And I believe in public schools because, going back to the beginning of the Constitution, the founders of this country wanted people to have at least enough education to be able to know who they're voting for and what they're voting on, and I still believe in that. And so that was a piece in The Hill that was very surprising because there's just so much evidence out at this point showing that school vouchers are a horrible idea everywhere they're ever tried. Period. End of story. Okay? Advancing to September 3rd, we made a tweet about the Ed Reform Wars. And the tweet says, Slanted WSJ piece on the Ed Reform Wars as billionaire non-educators continue to privatize U.S. public schools using high-stakes standardized tests and junk science accountability. When are the open debates going to happen so that critical thinkers can compare the arguments and the evidence head-to-head? Okay, now here we have an article. There is an author named Carl Zinsmeister. There's a name for you. And it was an opinion piece called Education Reform Will Weather the Left's Assault. And he is pointing out and admitting that the education reform, this is the charter school industry, the testing industry, the privatizers, you know, that they are back on their heels. They are talking about how the Democrats, you know, by and large in in New York have turned back the tide. They elected a whole bunch of anti-charter Democrats. People like Jeb Bush and John Boehner have kind of receded into the background during the Trump era. And how uh, big donors like the Waltons and the Gates and Bloomberg are not sure what their next steps are because in the past it's been pretty easy just to spread uh, cash around, campaign cash, and have your candidates win. Well, that doesn't seem to be working anymore, so they're not sure what to do about it. All right, and so I think he's basically saying, like, hang in there. You know, when the Wall Street Journal publishes an op-ed, it's really talking to the investors to hang in there and donors to hang in there, politicians, because they are losing these arguments. And more evidence of that came in a tweet that we made on September 6th. It talks about this physics teacher uh, by the name of Mike Lillis. All right, he's up in Westchester County. Uh, he's also a he's also the uh, president of a, a teacher local, uh, the Lakeland Federation of Teachers. On September 5th, he wrote an open letter to the future New York State Education Commissioner. All right, currently we do not have an education commissioner in New York State because uh, Mary Ellen Elia resigned at the end of August, and we have an acting commissioner by the name of Beth Berlin, Elizabeth Berlin, uh, who's just an acting commissioner. And so there, there's a search undergoing, uh, you know, ongoing right now. Mike Lillis, uh, who is a very, very concrete c- kind of a guy, he's very like a statistical-oriented guy. I love reading his stuff because he just puts all the evidence out there so that critical thinkers can make up their own mind. And he's talking hypothetically to the next uh, education commissioner, right? This is basically, you know, the the superintendent of all the superintendents in the state. And he's saying that you are going to be inheriting a department which is operated without transparency, 
without respect or responsiveness to stakeholders. And no area represents this debacle more than the issue of the 3rd to 8th grade math and ELA assessments, otherwise known as the New York State Standardized Tests, right, the federally mandated test. Mike writes, it is important that you quickly become familiar with this problem and that we do not believe that you can rely on your staff to inform you of the most salient issues because the source of the problem goes back to 2013 and the New York State Education Department has had incredible turnover which has disrupted crucial institutional memory. There has also been a significant lack of interest among the assessment staff in the state ed department about having an honest discussion with stakeholders. And by that, he means parents, teachers, educators, administrators, even students, uh, basically the taxpayer, right? The people that they're supposed to be serving. The issues concerning standardized tests are complex, but he wants to focus on a single aspect in this piece, in this article that he writes on WordPress, okay? And that is the testing benchmarks, Okay, the benchmarks, that means the cut points. That means those are the levels where proficiency is set, right? If a kid gets a certain number of answers correct and they get a certain score on their written essay, uh, they get a certain number of points. And there's a point at which, you know, a failing score turns into a passing score. There's a, a point that where a passing score falls below and becomes a failing score. So what is that crucial point and what is that based on? Okay, the benchmarks behind the cut points, he says, are the most complicated for the general public to understand, and they reveal the state education department's pretentious language. He goes over that in detail, right? Performing at grade level is not an actual scientific thing, right? It is subjective. Performing at grade level for who? For a rich kid in Massachusetts or for a poor kid in the Bronx, right? Performing at grade level means different things for different neighborhoods, for different states, for different nations. So, you know, he's taking aim at the language that they're using here, and he links to the most recent technical report provided by New York State, which was issued in May of 2019, and was covering the 2017 assessments. In, in level three, it says, it says, students performing at this level are proficient in standards for their grade. They demonstrate knowledge, skills, and practices embodied by the New York State P-12 learning standards for English language arts or math that are considered sufficient for the expectations at this grade. And you might notice that I kind of emphasize the word sufficient. Okay, Mike Lillis argues that there's a lot to unpack, but if, the, if you simply focus on the difference between a 2 and a 3, the point becomes clear. The descriptor of a 3 indicates that students are proficient to be performing at, at grade level. This is simply too sloppy to be unintentional for a group of psychometricians to use in a technical report, and it gets to the heart of the matter at hand. The definitions of these terms are widely understood among testing specialists, and they cannot be used in this way unless the intention is to confuse. All right, then he goes into the Webster definition of proficient, right, and the difference between the definition of sufficient, okay? Proficient means well-advanced. Sufficient means meet the needs, you know, just basically meets the needs. So a student who meets the needs of performing at grade level cannot automatically be considered proficient or well-advanced at grade level. And so there's a lot more to his essay here. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but basically he does unpack paragraph after paragraph showing that this, the New York State Education Department hired the College Board. All right, New York State hired the College Board to do the definition of proficient. 
When they came back, they indicated that a student who's proficient would score at least a 1630 on the SAT. Okay, this was in 2013. A 1630 out of 2,400 points. In 2013, this score was in the 66th percentile, which means two-thirds of the people score below and only a third above. So therefore, a student who gets a low three on the state tests is on track to perform among the top third of the SAT test takers, and a student with a high two is not. Which means that we set our benchmarks completely wrong, right? And this is like third graders, fourth graders, fifth graders, right? Some are developmentally behind pace and are going to catch up later. But we're telling them that you're not proficient at grade level. If you're not on pace to get a 1630 on the SAT, we can't take an average, you know, and set it to the top third, right? That is skewed. That is inaccurate. That is flawed. I'm reading from Mike Lillis. To understand how deeply flawed this study performed by the College Board for the State Education Department was, one needs only to review the study the College Board did to advise colleges and universities about interpreting their own test scores. For its own purposes in 2013, the College Career Readiness as a score of 1550. Inexplicably, this was the same year it defined college and career readiness as a score of 1630 for the New York State Education Department. The difference is 9 percentile points increase in expectations for students. This discrepancy has no justification and is the confusion and mismeasurement on our standardized test. If you want to read that, uh, it's linked to uh, the New York BATS Twitter feed. Uh, it's called An Open Letter to the Future New York State Commissioner. He goes and he cites the law and in the regulations that show just exactly how flawed it is. And we went through it just now with you to see that the whole thing is ridiculous and that we farmed it out to a corporation who does not have the best interests of the New York State students in mind. You know, the only thing that they're interested in is getting more contracts, getting more privatization. They are totally in bed with the privatization movement, charter schools, you name it. Okay, let's skip forward to September 7th. And the headline was not listening. And here we write that the reported New York State opt-out rate for 2019 dropped 2% to 16%. So last year, the opt-out rate statewide was 18%. The year before that, it was about 20%, uh, 21%. So it has been steadily dropping by a couple of percentage points each year. Uh, one of the big reasons for that is the fact that every year, some parents age out. So if a parent was opting out for years and years, and their kids are no longer in the 8th grade because they're going to high school now, those parents are no longer part of the movement, and they're being replaced by new parents. And the incoming parents are not getting the message down in third grade that these other parents had. And so, you know, it's only dropping slightly. 16% still leads the nation by far in opt-out. But still very important is that of the 732 school districts in New York State, this is saying that over 81% of New York State's school districts, more than 5% opt out every year. Statewide opt-out rate is 16%. Out on Long Island, it's about 46%. Um, it's, it might be under 5% in New York City, which is a huge district, but you know, then you have Yonkers, then you have Buffalo, then you have White Plains, then you have Rochester, you have Syracuse, you have all these big areas. And, you know, the, the rates go up and down, but 81% are still over the 5%.
We won't get into it now, but there are negative consequences. It doesn't matter. The, the parents aren't listening. Uh, they're still opting out, you know, at, at very high rates. And so it remains to be seen what's going to happen as a result. Skipping ahead to September 8th, we retweeted, of all people, you're going to laugh, Valerie Bertinelli. (laughs) Yes, Valerie Bertinelli. Uh, She had a tweet on her Twitter feed that said, I will never understand how Republicans get the fiscally conservative label when they give billions of dollars in tax breaks to multi-billionaires who don't need it. And in the meantime, teachers can't afford supplies for their classrooms. Okay, this was a tweet that Valerie Bertinelli got 45,000 likes and over 9,000 retweets. She's right. And to her credit, Valerie Bertinelli is probably a multi-millionaire herself, not a multi-billionaire. But she's calling out, you know, why are Republicans getting the fiscally conservative label? You know, they are the ones that are basically giving away the store to corporations and subsidies and tax breaks to billionaires. They're rewriting the tax code for the inheritance tax, for the estate tax, capital gains tax, you name it. So who is actually saying and who still believes at this point that they're fiscally conservative? Well, I don't think anybody, because this latest uh, federal budget that they voted for increased the deficit. And, you know, it, it was a huge spending junket, you know, the military spending, deficit spending, and the Republicans, you know, that always seem to complain when the Democrats are in office, you don't hear squat from them now. And so good on Valerie Bertinelli for calling that out. Wolfgang's mom. Okay, uh, we're going to fast forward to yesterday, and we made a tweet that said the New York State Allies for Public Education have released a press release. Okay, this is an organization of over 80 groups, including a lot of opt-out groups, parent groups, teacher groups, and that includes the New York BATS. And they put out a press release talking about the 2019 testing debacle. Although reported statewide test refusals are down by 2%, the intimidation and deception tactics revealed this year show the need for new leadership at the New York State Education Department. And it is true. There were scare tactics that were uncovered this year from the former outgoing commissioner, Mary Ellen Elia. That included uh, rewards and punishments, that included students being told that you can't can't be put on the honor roll unless you take the tests, that you're going to have to go to summer school if you don't take the test. All these threats, they were all, it turns out they were all lies and deceptions. And so that, that's one of the reasons why the commissioner stepped down, because she was busted lying. This This is another one of the reasons why, besides aging out, this is another one of the reasons, reasons why test refusals are down because superintendents have been making kids and making parents take the test. They've been lying to parents and telling them that you have to jump through hoops. If you want to actually opt out, you can't just send in a letter. You have to come into the school. You have to submit it. It has to be in by a certain date. All of these things have been made up. They are all complete deceptions. All right, The state has to respect any parent request if they send in their kid with any handwritten letter in any font or any language that says, I don't want my kids to take this test, they have to respect that, and they haven't been. So we'll see next year uh, if the opt-out rate goes up, and we'll see if the legislature actually passes the opt-out notification bill 
that almost passed last year. It passed in the state Senate. It didn't make it in the Assembly because there were complications around the New York City Teachers Union. Second to last tweet says, Investors first. Learn how growth in charter school construction benefits real estate developers, financial consultants, and investors who double as creditor and landlord while raking in fat returns thanks to lucrative tax credits. Okay, and here there was a great article in commondreams.org, and it was reposted from the LA Progressive. Really good article by Sarah Lam. I don't know if that's pronounced right. It might be Lam or Lam. L-A-H-M. You tell me. Sarah L-A-H-M reports on how a fight over a beloved historic church in the Twin Cities shows how supposedly nonprofit charter schools have become powerful players in a lucrative real estate market. And here the article talks about this Minnesota fight where the people of the area lost control over a huge building that was a landmark church that was being used as a school. And it, it was taken over by a charter school management company. Nobody knows exactly who's the owner. Is it the charter school uh, network? Is it the management company? Is it the finance company? Is it one of these other third parties, right? They have all these layers and these shell games. So basically, they tore down this church that was well-beloved in this neighborhood, and they're, they're building new seats for a charter school. The charter school company is saying, screw you to the community, and it is just uncovering this really complicated network of financial layers. Like, you know, there's one company that provides the financing. There's another, another company that takes all of these uh, financing plays and packages them into bonds. So, you know, there's another company that provides the bond ratings on the bonds and puts up financial backing, right? In other, like co-signing, you know, like that's called credit enhancement firms, right? That's four different firms right there. Then you have consultants, which help the charter companies navigate the tax programs, right? The federal tax programs and the tax implications. That's five different companies right there. All these people have their hands out. The article talks about the new markets tax credit, uh, government-backed loans, government-backed what they call um, credit enhancement allocations, right, which, which is in case the loans default, the funds get taken out. The federal tax credits, you know, it's really complicated. Uh, people really need to learn what's going on, right? They are all of these, like, banks and financial companies and real estate developer, construction firms, financing firms, they all have their hands in the pot here, and they are slowly but surely taking public money out of the system that used to just very simply, you know, go to fund schools and teachers and keep the lights on and buy, you know, chairs and pencils and books. And now they're going out to these firms, these for-profit companies. And even if the nonprofit school at the very, very end is the end user, it doesn't mean that all of these other for-profit entities or, you know, management companies don't have their hands in the cookie jar. So people can go check that out on commondreams.org. Look up the article called Why 2020 Dems Should Target the Nonprofit Charter School Industry. Okay, and that also points back to uh, Bernie Sanders, who, you know, is the only presidential candidate currently saying that he opposes all charter schools. He would defund, he would stop all federal funding for not some charter schools, not for-profit charter schools like Joe Biden and Elizabeth Warren. 
he would stop funding for all charter schools, okay? And finally, we are at our last tweet. This tweet is titled, Nonprofit in Name Only. And this is just what we're talking about. A Pennsylvania mess shows that there isn't much difference between nonprofit charter schools and the for-profit affiliates they sustain with public money. And this goes into this, in this whole other convoluted fight going on as Governor Wolf of Pennsylvania is kind of turning back the tide, uh, making charter school supporters uh, very unhappy. You know, after a long history of fraud and waste in the charter school sector, I did make friends with some people in Philadelphia that uh, might be having uh, as a call-in. But uh, basically, you know, the charter sector is it's much bigger in Philly, in Philadelphia. I think it's about 15% statewide in PA, but in Philly, it might be as high as 20%. And they're having their own battles. Um, I'm not going to go into it because this is not PA update. This is NY update. And so with that, as always, want to thank Richard and the folks here at Rockland World Radio for hosting us. If you want to, you can tune into our archives at any time at nyupdate.org, or you can just pop onto Twitter and catch us at UpdateNY. Uh, Same thing, only backwards. So for New York Update, this is Jake Jacobs. We will not actually be here next Tuesday. Uh, Next Tuesday will be cool, though, because we're going to be gathering up some audio, and we're going to be doing some, uh, hopefully, some audio interviews at this cool fundraiser for a congressional candidate down in Astoria, Queens. And we'll tell you all about the Tuesday following next Tuesday.